turn to the book of Mark, book of Mark, chapter 7. And as you get there, if you could stand with me in honor of reading God's Word, we're going to read Mark 7, verses 24 to the end of the chapter. Mark 7, 24 through 37. This is what the word of God says. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast a demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus, Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. May you bless it. May your Holy Spirit enable my tongue to speak truthfully and accurately. And may your Holy Spirit also open ears so that we may hear from you this morning. God, we pray for those who um, are struggling, who uh, need help financially, physically, spiritually. God, I pray this morning this would be a place where someone could approach someone else and ask for prayer where um, people can, can open up to how they are really doing and what they really need. Father, we also pray that you would be with our pastor and his family on vacation. Give him um, and them blessed rest and bring him back to us fully energized and, and ready to go. Thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, last week we had a table up front and Pastor Ron... Um, illustrated uh, a portion of scripture for us um, with a, a jug of water. And that was from the earlier portion of Mark chapter 7. And if you remember last week, we talked about um, cleanliness. We talked about um, being clean on the inside as well as on the outside. And Jesus had a confrontation with the Pharisees who had stressed the, the outer goodness, the outer cleanliness, and had neglected the inside. And I just want to go back real quick and see what Jesus said in our last portion of scripture because it bears directly on what we're studying this morning. So just go back up your page or turn the page to Mark seven, eighteen, And it's just after he's talked to the people and the Pharisees and he's just with his disciples and he says, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And I don't know about you, but last week was a little bit uncomfortable as Pastor Ron, through the power of the Holy Spirit, kind of unearthed some things in our hearts, I think, about how we are so concerned about our outward appearance and our outward um, actions and, and often neglect to do heart work, to allow the Holy Spirit to kind of crack open some rooms that we've closed and really get into our hearts to seek purity. And Jesus takes on the Pharisees head on. He declares to them that their practices are um, just the commandments of men. They've neglected the commandments of God. And that's an uncomfortable story 
And today we have two weird ones. <laughs> I don't know if you were listening when I read that or following along, but these are some interesting stories. Jesus calls a woman a dog, and Jesus heals a deaf guy by spitting. So this is, this is a very interesting morning. We have two weird stories to cover. But I think that follows perfectly from last week, because last week Jesus basically says there's no unclean foods. Um, there are no unclean foods. And this week he says, there are no unclean people. He begins to move from the, the illustration, the picture of food, and we see it directly applied to people. In fact, a woman here. And we must remember, um, as, we, as we move through the Gospel of Mark, we're, we're almost halfway through. And at the very beginning, Pastor Ron reminded us of who the book was written to. Very likely that it was written to Gentile believers in the city of Rome, somewhere about 20 to 35 years after the death of Jesus. And the apostle Peter is most likely behind this, as John Mark was his assistant, um, maybe somewhat of a scribe. And so it's written to people living in Rome. They're Gentiles and they're believers. And so that is really important to remember because that bears directly on how we interpret this passage. Who was Mark writing this to and why? So we must remember that. We also need to remember that we see Jesus here pulling away a little bit from more of a public ministry. As we continue to go into Mark, in just a few chapters, we'll get to Passion Week, and Mark spends almost half of his book on the last week of Jesus' life. And from this point on, Jesus does not do as much public teaching as he's done in the past. We've seen stories of him speaking to thousands of people on multiple occasions and crowds following him so he can't even get away. And we'll see today he starts to, to pull away into more of a private ministry to prepare the twelve to carry on when he is gone. And so all these things have happened in and around the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus heads up, as you see in verse 24, to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And really quick, I just want to give you a visual on this. So if we kill the lights and get this map up, this is really helpful for us to see. Sea of Galilee is right here, and Jesus does most of his ministry on the west coast right here, in Gennesaret and Capernaum. Sometimes crosses over. You remember when he casts out the demon's legion, he goes to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. But in our story, he's actually going to go north, and he's going to leave Israel. He's going to leave the boundaries of Israel and go into the region of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre's about 30-ish miles from the west coast of Galilee, and Sidon is about 20 more miles north of Tyre. And so Jesus, for the very first time, is going to completely leave any semblance of Jewish population. He is out of town. He is going on vacation. And it doesn't necessarily mean he went to these bigger cities, but the word is the region, and so he leaves the region of Galilee and goes up into the area of Tyre and Sidon. A little background on Tyre and Sidon. Tyre especially was an important trading city. If you read through the Old Testament, you go through the prophets, Tyre comes up again and again and again. Tuesday night at Reality Check, it came up. And you'll see in, in prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, and Zechariah, they all prophesy about God's wrath on Tyre. There's not a lot of good news for Tyre in the Old Testament. And this city used to have two portions. It was, it was a great city because most of the people lived on the mainland and there was a, an island just off the coast. And this is where the fortress was and the important uh, rulers lived. And Alexander the Great came along 300-something years before Jesus and decided to build a bridge out to Tyre and to destroy them. And since that time, Tyre has not been an island anymore. Even today, it juts out from the coast. Jezebel was from this region, the wife of King Ahab of the northern kingdom. Jezebel, who turned the people's hearts to the Baals and the Ashtoreths. The people did not have, the people of Israel did not have a great love for Tyre. In fact, Josephus, a Jewish historian, says that they had no more bitter enemies than the Tyrians. 
The people of Israel, especially the people of Galilee, did not get along with those from Tyre and Sidon. They were enemies. They had economic issues with each other. They had political issues with each other. They hated each other. In fact, one of the commentators says this, Tyre probably represented the most extreme expression of paganism, both actually and symbolically, that a Jew could expect to encounter. So Jesus is going into hostile territory. He is leaving Jewish bounds and headed up to Tyre and Sidon. In the past few weeks, we've, we've seen that Jesus attempted to get away. Back in chapter 6, verse 31, Jesus is attempting to get away, to take a break, and he cannot get away. The crowds will not let him go. Again, he gets back after walking on water and the... And rescuing the disciples from the storm and they get to shore and as soon as they get there there's a crowd there's no chance to rest there's no chance to get away so there is reason to believe jesus is leaving with the 12 to get away on retreat to spend time with the father and to spend time away from the pestering pharisees from the crowds he also may be letting things cool off between him and King Herod Antipas, who was in charge of the region. And Herod, it had been told in the story of John the Baptist that Fred covered several weeks ago, that, that Herod thought that he had killed John the Baptist. So who's this Jesus guy? Is he John the Baptist from the dead? What's going on? And so Jesus may also be leaving to, to let things cool off with Herod, to let him get distracted by something else. One last point that we must note is back in chapter 3, verse 8. Just turn a few pages over. Mark chapter 3. The beginning of Jesus' ministry. Crowds are beginning to follow him because he's healing a man with a withered hand. He's defying the Pharisees. He's healing a guy let down through the roof who is paralyzed. And verse 7 says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. So Jesus was not unknown in this area. People had already been flocking to him, traveling dozens of miles to come and see this miracle worker and preacher. And we see in verse 24 that he does not want to leave. And this begins, he does not want to be found. And this begins a story in your notes, a Gentile woman's persistent faith. Gentile woman's persistent faith. We just covered the first part of the setting. Number one is the setting around the region of Tyre and Sidon. He entered a house, verse 24, and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Jesus is too popular to get away. He can't escape the paparazzi. He can't escape anybody. They, they all follow him. They all know where he is. There's no way to get away. Verse 25, and a word we've become very familiar with in the book of Mark, but immediately, a word that Mark uses over and over again to move the story along, but immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. That phrase, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, she got three strikes against her. You'll see that in your notes. There are three strikes against her just from that sentence. Okay, so, so Mark introduces this in a way that his readers would have immediately recognized this is an odd circumstance. This is a bad circumstance for this woman. First, she's a woman. In those times, that was secondary citizenship. She was not held up or honored or esteemed very much. Second, she's a Gentile. She is a Gentile. She is not one of God's chosen people. And so she has that going against her. And then not only that, but it's reinforced that she's a Syrophoenician. And that just means she's from the region of Tyre and Sidon, which was called Phoenicia. And this, like I said, was a place that was hostile to Israel. And so you can imagine Jesus and his disciples being confronted by a Gentile woman who's from this region. That's two. Three strikes against her. Okay, that is what we see at the outset of this story. And she comes and she throws herself down at Jesus' feet in a posture of humility, as we've seen many others do. In fact, the last person that Mark mentioned doing this was Jairus, who was a leader in the synagogue, an esteemed man. And there's a very different picture of this Gentile woman doing the same thing, falling at Jesus' 
feet. And she has a problem. Her little daughter had an unclean spirit. And that's really important. The spirit is described as unclean. Last week, we talked about clean and unclean. And so immediately, Mark is showing us that this whole discussion of cleanliness and ritual purity transfers right into this next story. Not only is this woman a Gentile, but she has a daughter who has an unclean spirit. And it's really easy to read this through. We've heard this story before. If you've grown up in church, you've heard this before. But we've got to feel it. Sometimes we don't feel these stories. We don't allow ourselves to be emotionally drawn in to this story. Ladies, imagine your little daughter with a demon, an unclean spirit. What would you do in order to find healing for your daughter? Anything? Whatever it takes. That's exactly what this woman is feeling. And so instead of just reading over the passage and and kind of analyzing it and seeing how things are going, we want to feel as well. We want to feel what this woman felt. She runs to Jesus, throws herself at his feet. When was the last time you fell at someone's feet? (laughs) Never. That doesn't happen. She throws herself at Jesus' feet. She is a desperate woman. Desperate for her daughter. You see that in the word in verse 26. And she begged him. She pleaded with him. If you go to the parallel account in Matthew, she won't stop following them. And the disciples are like, Lord, she's annoying us. Take care of this woman. Because she's following and calling out and trying to get Jesus' attention. She will not take no for an answer, and so she begs Jesus to cast the demon out. And as we get to to verse 27, we see the second point, Jesus' offensive riddle. Jesus' offensive riddle. This has been an interesting verse for all of Christian history. People have tried to interpret this and see what is going on. And at first blush, I just want us to put ourselves in the woman's shoes. Just thrown yourself on the ground in a position of utter humiliation before this Jew, this Jewish man that you've heard of. You're asking him, begging him to heal your daughter, and this is what he says to you. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And now imagine yourself as that woman. I I imagine myself being crestfallen. I'm utterly disappointed i've just been rejected by this jewish man i've done everything i can to throw myself at his feet and he calls me a dog and and this is a very important thing to see because jesus seems to be representing a lot of what the jews thought of gentiles you'll see under number two there in your notes in the ot in the old testament the israelites are referred to as god's children over and over and over. Either they are described as children or God is described as their father. You read passage after passage that talks about God's kindness, his tenderness, as he is a father to his children. And so the children of Israel took it upon themselves to understand very clearly, we are the children of God. And we can understand that. That, that could very easily degenerate into pride. We've probably all felt that when we've seen an unbeliever, a drunken person, someone who is, is crazy, someone who lives on the street, and, and we are tempted to think, oh, I'm, I'm glad I'm a Christian. I'm glad I'm a good person, not like that. And I think that's exactly what's happened to the Jewish people, is they've let it go to their heads that they are the children of God. Now, it is an exalted position. What an amazing thing to be a child of God. And this is what the people of Israel would have seen. However... They would not have extended much grace to those outside. Now the Jews did allow Gentiles to to become Jewish, but they'd have to be circumcised if they were male. They'd have to follow all the laws of Moses, and they would be initiated in some kind of cleansing baptismal rite. So, So they did allow Gentiles to come in, but the Gentiles would have to come in on their terms. And so here we see Jesus reflecting the children, let the children be fed first, talking about the children of Israel. Now, we hear dogs. How many of you own a dog? Oh, wow, that is a massive chunk of the congregation. Okay, how many of you love dogs? Okay, good. I'm not going to ask who doesn't because we can deal with that later. But you, give me some of your dog's names. 
Dottie. Bert. What? <laughs> what was that? Bert? Gracie. Duke. Tinker. Like Tinker Bell? Oh, Tinker Toy. Very good. See, look at these love, lovely names, right? We kind of affectionate names. Um, don't think that when you read this passage. The Jews did not view dogs nicely, right? You remember the, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, and Lazarus is outside the gates, and he's got open sores, and the dogs come up, and what are they doing? They're licking his sores, okay? Um, dogs throughout the Old Testament are never, ever, ever written about in the positive light, <laughs> okay? Um, Joseph did not have the coat of many colors, and Fido, Okay? <laughs> There, there are no pets. Dogs are not pets. In fact, your second point there is dogs were disgusting scavengers. The Jews viewed dogs as unclean. Maybe think if you've, if you've ever been to Tijuana and seen some of the scraggly scavenger dogs. And I know a lot of the ladies, are, oh, don't pet that dog. <laughs> don't get near that dog because that dog eats the trash. That dog probably has 17 diseases. Um, that is what we're to view here. The, the children of Israel called the Gentiles dogs because they equated them with the dogs they knew in real life. Okay? And so that's what this woman hears, and that's what the Jews, the Jews as a whole, meant when they talked about dogs. The next point there, you'll see the rabbis said, the peoples of the world are like dogs. That was what the rabbis in Judaism taught. So what does that do to the people that are hearing this teaching all of their life? They see someone on the street who's a Gentile. Dog. Okay? They hear of something going on in a foreign country. Those dogs. That's how they think. That is what we're to think when we see the word dogs. Um, here's some quotes about dogs. Dogs were associated with uncleanness because they ate garbage, carrion, and corpses. Some debate this word, whether or not it means actually puppy dog, um, or if it's talking about a dog out in the street. It doesn't matter. Jesus calls the woman a dog. Um, whether or not it's a puppy dog or a wild dog, Jesus refers to her and all Gentiles here, it seems, as dogs. And what is amazing is how the woman reacts. Instead of weeping and walking away dejected, she recognizes in Jesus, whether it was his tone or whatever, she recognizes a riddle. And I think the key is in verse 27 is Jesus says, let the children be fed first. And I think the woman latches on to that because you'll see her response in verse 28. But she answered him, yes, Lord. She doesn't disagree. Yes, Lord, you're right. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So you see the picture. She's either changed up the picture or she understood dogs in a little bit better light. But she sees a family around a dinner table eating. And the children are eating a little bit messily, perhaps. Or perhaps you're feeding them something they don't really like and you turn your head and the dog's right there. <laughs> no one's ever done that here. But whatever the case, this woman understands that in real life, quite often, crumbs fall off the table. And before you can go pick it up, that dog is over there, right? Right over there, lickety-split, to eat up those crumbs. And so this is what the woman, in, in an essence, counters Jesus' argument with this statement. And I think she latches on to the fact that Jesus said first. He said, let the children be fed first. That doesn't preclude others being fed. But it does say that there is a, a primacy to the Jewish people here. And you see that in Romans. When, when Paul writes to these very same people, he says the gospel, he talks about the gospel, the power of it, and it's going to go to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So this woman, in her faith-filled response, number three, this woman's faith-filled response, I think what we see here is she recognizes Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. So that's your first blank. She recognizes Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. And she recognizes him as Lord of all. Because she says, Lord, you know what? I agree with you. I agree that the food, the bread, that should go first to the children. God, way back when, chose Abraham. He elected a people. He chose them. 
for a specific purpose, to do a specific task. He did not choose the Assyrians. He did not choose the Babylonians. He did not choose the Egyptians. He chose the Israelites. And so this woman says, yes, that's true. That's right. But I believe that you are the Messiah of Israel and the Lord of all. And so can I have a crumb? What faith this woman had. She's basically been rejected on her face by this man. And she has the faith and the courage to, to counter and, and interpret for us Jesus' riddle and to say, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And this is all the more amazing because she's desperate. She's desperate for healing for her daughter who has an unclean spirit, a demon. And yet she is, she's able to, to think quickly and to counter Jesus' Jesus's claim, Jesus' riddle. And so in verses 29 and 30, we see the result. The result. And he said to her, verse 29, For this statement you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. This is an amazing, amazing statement. Jesus responds to the woman calling him Lord. In fact, it's the only time in Mark that someone calls Jesus Lord. It's all through Mark. And this woman, a Gentile, is the only one to call Jesus Lord. And she resp- he responds and says, For this statement, you may go your way. Now, she didn't just say the right words. Like, there wasn't a magic phrase. Like, Jesus didn't say, What's the password? Oh, you got it! Yay! It's your lucky day! You get to get healed today. No, I think what's going on here is he recognizes her faith. In order to say what she said, she's got to believe. She has to have faith. And he recognizes that faith. And he says, For this statement, you may go your way. That's always good. When Jesus says, go home, or or, go your way, that's always a good statement in the book of Mark. When he heals the paralytic, he says, pick up your mat and go home. Okay? Go to the place you're from. Go to the place you live. Go show your family. Go show your friends. Go show your neighbors what I've done for you. And here he tells the woman, go go your way. In essence, go home. The demon has left your daughter. (laughs) And we know this story, but can you imagine that? Jesus heals Long distance. Most of the times, people are crowding around. They're trying to touch his garments. They're, they're trying to get in front of him so he can lay hands on her or him. And this, he just says, go home, your do- the demon's gone. And again, this takes faith, because now the woman has to believe it, turn around and walk away, and go check, and go see if, if what this man has said is really true. And, and Jesus heals long distance. The only long distance healing in the book of, of Mark. You can see a few other in the other Gospels. But Jesus here, from a ways away, just with a word, with a thought, casts out the demon from her daughter. In verse 30, And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. And the word there for lying is not just just hanging out in bed and lying down for a nap. It, it speaks of kind of lying down after exhaustion or after being thrown it's the same word that, that we'll see in chapter 9 of this demon-possessed boy who's been thrown around by the demon, tried to be thrown in the fire and thrown in the water, and he's laying there. And it seems to be happening to different demon-possessed people throughout the Gospels is that the demon sometimes leaves violently, shaking the body, and the body collapses. And so it seems that this, this little girl, mom goes home, and the little girl is collapsed in bed, but she's there in her right mind. The demon is gone. We're not told what this demon did, but from what other demons have done throughout the Gospels, we see just horrible things that could have happened to this little girl. And when mom gets home, she recognizes that this man healed her daughter. It's an amazing story of a woman's great faith. And get this, nobody else in the Gospel has had faith like this. Jesus continues to implore the disciples, Are you dumb? Are you dumb? Can you guys not getting this? I have to explain every little thing to you. And the Pharisees are always rejecting him, even though they know the scripture better than anybody. And this Gentile woman, an enemy of the Jews, puts her faith in the Jewish Messiah that there's enough grace to overflow, to fall off the table for those who need it. And folks, most of us in this room are Gentiles. Most of us in this room are Gentiles, and praise God there's enough crumbs to fall off the table. 
We need that grace so desperately. And so we should learn from this woman and be desperate enough to fall at the feet of Jesus to ask him for things instead of being good red, white, and blue Americans and do it ourselves. I'll fix this myself. Can we be humble enough? Can we be desperate enough? Can we recognize that we should be desperate enough to fall at Jesus' feet and plead and beg for healing and for faith, for grace? What, a, what, a, what an amazing woman she is, and we learn so much from her. And our response should be, there at the bottom of your, of your page of notes, our response should be this, am I desperate for Jesus? And I word that specifically so that I see it and it's me and you see it and it's you. Am I desperate for Jesus? Or did I say a prayer and got baptized and call myself a Christian and, man, I was desperate, but now I got it made. Or are we still desperate for Jesus? Look at the life of Paul. He never loses a desperation for Jesus. He asks the people he writes letters to, pray for me, I need boldness. I always, Paul needed boldness. He was desperate for boldness. And so we should be desperate for those things. Desperate for Jesus himself. Second one, we must remember that we were once dogs too. We must remember that we were once dogs too. And that's a hard thing to think. We were dogs. And I have a hard word for you if you're not a believer today. You stand in the stead of being a dog in the sense that you desperately need to come to Jesus to become a child. And we must remember in looking back at our salvation experience never to, to, to gloat over look what I've done, look where I've come from, but to look back and say I was a dog, I was a wretch. David in the Old Testament calls himself a dead dog, a flea. To, to see ourselves there and to see what Jesus has done for us. And then the last one is, do I view other people as dogs? And I put other in quotes there because I mean people not like me, people not like you. Uh, this prayer for the Muslim world thing is fantastic because I tend to watch the news or read the news and, and, and characterize people, right? So a missile flies into a school bus in Israel and kills 30 kids. And I just all of a sudden lump all the Palestinians together into a terrorist group. And often, maybe unconsciously, kind of think that they're not worthy of God's grace. That if someone like that would do something like that, then they, they don't deserve God's grace. Forgetting my sins and forgetting my rejection of Jesus before I was a Christian. And so we need to constantly do that. Does that person deserve the gospel? No, and neither did you. But we've been tasked with giving the gospel regardless of who it is, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. And so we need to respond to people um, in a way that we, we don't see color or, or socioeconomic status or nationality as a barrier, but as a way to, to help us stretch ourselves and to see that all people need this Jesus. And now we turn to the second story. The second story gets a little bit weirder. And Jesus is going to, to heal a deaf man. And so I've just entitled this very, very simply, Jesus' kindness to a deaf man. Jesus' kindness to a deaf man. This is kind of a hobby horse. I'm going to jump on it real quick. I don't like the word nice. I use it sometimes, but I try not to. Because I think the word kind says so many more things. We tell our kids, be nice. Be nice. Um, for one thing, and I'm maybe just a stickler, but nice isn't in the Bible. Kind is. And we want to be kind people. We want our children to be kind people. But Jesus isn't just nice. In fact, sometimes he's not nice. But he's always kind. He's always kind. And we see this in the way he treats this deaf man. So go back to, to verse 31 of chapter 7. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. We'll stop there because this has... had thrown scholars for a loop for for centuries and i'll show you another map here just to kind of illustrate this this doesn't make much sense if you know the geography and you read it because it says he goes from tyre through sidon to get to the sea of galilee here's the sea of galilee here's tyre sidon isn't even on this map he goes from tyre 
through Sidon to get to the Sea of Galilee. Okay, that'd be like going to Fresno to get to San Diego. All right? That is not a fun trip. (laughs) Okay? That is way out of your way. And Jesus here goes from Tyre through Sidon, and so he takes this long, at least 120-mile trip to get back to the Sea of Galilee. You'll notice he's outside of Jewish boundaries, and he'll come back in to Jewish boundaries. And then it says he goes to the Decapolis. So he may have even gone all the way down into the Decapolis and then back up to the Sea of Galilee. He did not take the easy route. He could have just gone right back to his headquarters at Capernaum. Instead, Jesus goes around. And I think there are several reasons for that. Thank you for the map. There's several reasons for that. I think, again, Jesus is taking his disciples on a retreat. Okay? It's, it's a long road trip. It's kind of the one where you don't plan. and just, let's go down this road. <laughs> and Jesus goes for this long retreat. And this may have taken months, at the very least, weeks. So Jesus goes on an extended retreat with his disciples, going through more Gentile lands, unclean lands. Jesus goes through these lands and makes this long loop around and comes to the Decapolis. And the Decapolis, if you'll remember from the story of uh, the man who had many demons who lived in the um, cemeteries and the tombs, he lived in the Decapolis. Jesus has been here before and Jesus healed this man. And if you remember, this is the first Gentile missionary because Jesus says, no, you can't follow me. This demon-possessed man was healed and he wants to follow Jesus. Good response. Jesus says, no, go home and tell your family, tell your friends what great things I've done for you. So this man goes, and there's a possibility that because this man goes into the Decapolis and tells these people that more and more people in this region have now heard of Jesus. They've seen this man who was demon-possessed, who maybe was gone for years. He's back, he's in his right mind, he's healed, and he's talking about this Jesus fellow. Decapolis was a Gentile area, but there were many Jewish colonies there, so it would not have been um, too hard to see Jesus going through into Jewish populations and Gentile populations in this area. Not exactly clear since we don't know the route. But he comes into the Decapolis and he comes back to the Sea of Galilee. So he's on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And that's the setting. Just there, number one. The setting, just Decapolis, where he's been. Decapolis stands for ten cities. Okay, It was a kind of confederation of ten cities that kind of um, autonomously ruled an area. Um, all of the cities except for one were on the east side of the Jordan. And so that's where he is. Jesus still not quite back into clean Jewish territory. So he returns. And in verse 32, the action begins and we meet the deaf man. We meet the deaf man. They brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. Now, I put a Greek word in your notes, and I forgot to change it so that it was actually in English. Um, but it's mogilalos there. And it's only used this once in the New Testament. It's only ever used once in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it basically means to speak with difficulty or having an impediment in one's speech. And so that's the word that's used here. So he's deaf, he cannot hear, and he has some kind of speech impediment. It's difficult for him to communicate. This probably means he wasn't born this way. He may have been rendered deaf um, by some accident um, because we'll see when he's healed, he knows how to, how to speak and how to talk. But something's going on where he cannot hear and he has very difficult time speaking. Speech impediment. And these friends that bring it to him, bring him to Jesus, they, in verse 32, they begged him to lay his hand on him. So again, they're desperate. Okay, begging. This is not just, hey, Jesus, how you doing? We got a guy here. You want to take a look? No, this is begging. This is pleading. Please heal our friend. Please heal him. And in verse 33, Jesus does something a little out of the ordinary. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, stop. Jesus takes this man. There's no doubt a crowd around waiting to see what this, maybe they've heard. Jesus does some crazy things. He does miracles. Just come watch. Watch what Jesus does. And Jesus takes this deaf man and he, and he kind of just brings him over to the side. Takes him away from the crowd. In his authority, somehow keeping these people away. And I need to go talk to this man myself. And, and Jesus deals with him in a personal way. Just, a, just a, a, a beautiful picture of how Jesus cares not only about people, but he cares about persons individually. And so in number three, you see the weird healing. The weird healing. 
Jesus personally and kindly cares for this man. Jesus personally and kindly cares for this man. He takes him off privately. And then it gets weird. <laughs> okay, imagine this. You, you've got a picture in your mind of Jesus, I'm sure. And I'm sure it, he has a white robe on and a purple or red sash. Whatever Bible curriculum you grew up on. Mine, he had a, it was like more of a maroonish red sash. Pretty close cut beard and a, not too girly, but kind of long hair. So that's the Jesus, unfortunately, I generally go to. <laughs> Whatever picture of Jesus you have, this is different. Jesus takes this man away, and look what he does. He put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. This is gross, <laughs> okay? I am not going to demonstrate, <laughs> in case some of you were worried. Jesus is, it, it goes over to this man, and he puts his fingers in his ears. Now, what is he doing? <laughs> what is he doing? Now, use a Q-tip, Jesus. That's gross, okay? I think what Jesus is doing is he's, he's dealing with a man who can't hear what he's saying and has trouble communicating verbally. And so I think Jesus is using sign language. Okay, he's, Your ears can't hear. I'll touch them. These things right here, just letting the man know. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to hurt you. I, I'm here to help. Stick my fingers in your ears. These things, I'm going to unplug them. Okay? My little girl right now, Alice, has this fascination with just sticking her fingers in her ears and laughing. Okay? I can't hear what mom and dad are saying. Okay? And, 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 and then she, you know, has food on her fingers and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and it's just, ears are kind of weird and gross. Okay? And Jesus sticks his fingers in and he says, plugged, unplugged. Okay? I think he's showing the man what he's going to do. And then he spits. And we're not sure where he spit. So the question is, you know, all the scholars are like, maybe he spit on here, maybe he spit here, maybe he spit here. We don't know he spit, okay? Jesus spits, all right? Um, we may have a clue. If you turn, turn your page, we'll study this in a few weeks, but Mark chapter 8, he does a similar thing to a blind man. 8.23. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village, again, privately, and when he had spit on his eyes... Okay, so in this story, in, in the next few weeks, we'll see Jesus actually sprays the man in the face, on his eyes, spits right there. So perhaps, perhaps here he actually spits on the man's tongue. Okay. Whatever he does, there's spitting involved, and he touches the man's tongue. Okay, so with his hand, presumably, touches the man's tongue. So he's communicating to this man, I'm going to unplug your ears, I'm going to loosen your tongue. You have a hard time... Speaking, you, have, you cannot hear. So I'm going to heal these parts of your body. And this is totally consistent with how people in that time would heal. Um, the, the people at the time expected a healer to kind of be dramatic. Okay, they kind of expected a healer to, to show what he was going to do, to, to perform for them. And so you'll, you'll read in a lot of what magicians and, and healers did in those times is they would use, they would use roots. In fact, a, one of these ways is to get a, get a root and go up to a person who was demon possessed and you'd draw with the root the demon out of their nose. Okay, so this is not, it's weird to us. It's not abnormal to them that this is the way that the things were demonstrated physically, dramatically. Okay, it was a word picture showing exactly what was going on. And also, the spitting is actually very important. <laughs> Listen to this. Spittle was regarded as an important, an important curative force in Judaism and Hellenism. There was something about your saliva that had some magical powers to it. Garland says, healing in the ancient world was a hands-on activity. Healers were expected to do some purposeful action to restore health, and saliva was also believed to have healing properties. So, so th there's... A, a way that Jesus is not only showing him what he's going to do, but he's doing it in a way that this man probably would have recognized. Okay, oh, he spit. He's going to heal me. Because he can't hear what Jesus is saying. And so Jesus is, is using kind of the form of the day, the form that healers used, but using God's power in order to do this. And so he uses a form that the world would use, but he uses his own power to heal this man. And he looks up to heaven, verse 34. He sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. He speaks in Aramaic here. So there's debate over whether this man is a Gentile or not, which would be very interesting if Jesus actually touched a Gentile's ears and tongue. He may have been because he lived in a Gentile area. But Jesus does speak in Aramaic and he says, be opened. And not only that, he sighs. And it seems that he's kind of 
praying perhaps or just fed up with the sin and the causes of human suffering. Whatever the case, he looks up to heaven, perhaps still showing the man he's going to heal him. So he looks up to heaven and he says, be opened. And verse 35, and his ears were opened, his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Just like that. Boom. The man who couldn't hear and the man who had trouble speaking could do it all. In fact, very interesting, verse 35, the phrase tongue was released, um, the Greek literally says the chain of his tongue was loosened. So there's this picture of liberty, this chain that's chained this man. He cannot communicate. Jesus breaks the chain and, and this man's tongue is now loosened. He's able to speak. And so there's a picture of liberty. His ears are opened. He can hear. He can speak plainly. What an amazing healing. And Jesus' odd methods show his care. That's your, that's your blank there. Jesus' odd methods show his care. Just an amazing way that, that Jesus is kind to this man in the way he treats him. It, it may seem weird to us, and if I did that to you, you would not think kind. <laughs> that would not be how you describe it. But, but the way that Jesus deals with this man is very personal. And so that's what we need to, to learn about. Jesus is personal with people. And that gets messy and that gets dirty and that Jesus touches people's ears and touches their tongue and he's getting gross, okay? And, and sometimes that's what it takes in personal confrontation and in personal care for somebody. Last, number four, we see the crowd's response in verses 36 and 37. The crowd's response. So he's taking this man over to the side and you can imagine if your ears were open and your tongue was released, you probably wouldn't be like, oh, yay, I'm healed. You would probably respond in a loud, victorious sort of, yes, <laughs> uh, my tongue is loosened. I can speak. Can you hear me speaking? Look at me. I'm talking. I've never been able to do this before. I can talk. Talk to me. I can hear you. He's excited. And so there's, there's the very real opportunity for everyone over here going, What's Jesus doing? All of a sudden, this man starts talking. The crowd is not going to be like, oh, that's pretty cool. The crowd is going to be amazed. They're amazed. And Jesus charges them to tell no one. <laughs> Again, we see this happen. It's happened at least twice already in this, in this gospel. Jesus says, I've healed you. Don't tell anybody. Okay, and, and Pastor Ron talked about this. And the main reason was because it was attracting probably the wrong sort of popularity. Woo, three-ring circus. Go see Jesus and sons. Okay, like... Go to see this crazy healer guy instead of emphasizing the preaching that Jesus was there for. So we saw back in chapter 1 that he said, I'm going to leave this place. I can't get anything done. I need to go preach. I need to go. That's what I came for. And so Jesus says, tells him to tell no one. But again, it doesn't work. The more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And that, that word proclaim is the same word as preach. So these people, they see what happens and they can't help but tell everybody zealously. Okay? They're excited. In verse 37, they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And this is really important because it seems that there's two biblical, two Old Testament allusions here. He's done all things well. Genesis 1.31, God saw everything he had made and behold, it was very good. That's God surveying the whole of creation. It's very good. And this is these people surveying Jesus' restoration. He does all things well. And then they say, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And this is really important. We've got to go to Isaiah real quick. Turn in your, in your Old Testament to Isaiah chapter 35. 700 years before the time of Jesus, Isaiah wrote this book. And the rabbis would have taught from this very portion of Isaiah and they would have spoken about the Messiah to come. This would have been speaking about the Messiah they were expecting. Chapter 35, verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon, Tyre and Sidon, will, shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. This is the Messiah they're looking for. And then watch verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. 
Jesus is clearly, clearly fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. In the time of the Messiah, Isaiah said, these are the things that are going to happen. Eyes, blind eyes shall see, deaf ears shall hear, lame legs will leap, and mute tongues will sing. It's exactly what's happening. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. He is the one who unstops ears and loosens tongues. He does all things well. And that's our Jesus. And so our response, there in your notes, our response to this story, again, am I desperate for Jesus? You see, the first time the woman came and threw herself at his, at his feet, the second time the friends brought this man. Are you desperate for Jesus? And are you desperate for others for Jesus? Urgency, desperation. Number two, am I a zealous proclaimer of the gospel? These people saw one healing and they were zealous to proclaim it. If you're a Christian, you've seen your life completely changed. You've been given a heart of flesh to replace your heart of stone. You've been enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit to search out and to see God in the scriptures, to follow him and to know him personally. Are you a zealous proclaimer of that gospel for others? And last, do I really believe that God does all things well? And no one's going to stand up and say, no, I don't believe that. But often, we fall into that pattern, especially when times are bad, finances are strained, a death in the family, a prolonged sickness. We have trouble sometimes actually truly believing that God does all things well. But he does. And we have hints of it now, and in the future we'll see the great white throne judgment all will be made right and Jesus will do all things well and will experience it for all of eternity. So are you desperate for Jesus? Because if you're willing to be desperate for Jesus, there will be some dramatic answers. God uses those who are available in different ways to further his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today for the opportunity to look into the scriptures. May we do it frequently, and may we do it often, and may we see in it not only other people, but may we see ourselves reflected in the stories. May we see ourselves in the unbelieving Pharisees, in the dumb disciples. And may, God, may you give us glimpses of ourselves as this woman, throwing ourselves desperately at your feet, because we know that you have grace to dispense to us. Father, I pray for those in this room who don't know this grace, who don't experience it, who are faking the Christian life, who have never repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ, who loved them and gave himself for their sins on the cross and rose from the dead to conquer Satan's sin and death. Father, may today be the day of salvation. May all who believe here rejoice in their salvation and go out renewed, excited, and zealous to spread the good news. In Jesus' name, amen.